In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS fellows Dominic Glover and Lydia Cabral interview Glenn Davis Stone, research professor of environmental science at Sweetbriar College, Virginia. Glenn is author of the book, The Agricultural Dilemma, How Not to Feed the World. In the book and podcast, the author questions everything we think we know about the current state of agriculture and how to, or perhaps more importantly, how not to feed a world with a growing population. This book and podcast is essential reading and listening for all studying and researching food production and agriculture. Hi, my name is Dominic Glover. I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton on the south coast of England. And I'm here with my colleague, Lydia Cabral. Lydia? Hi, hello. Uh, I'm also a research fellow at, uh, at IDS and happy to be here. And today it's our very great pleasure to welcome Professor Glenn Davis Stone from Sweetbriar College in Virginia, United States. And we're gonna be talking about his new book, The Agricultural Dilemma. Uh, with the subtitle, How Not to Feed the World, a nice um, provocative title. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you very much, Dominic. And hi, Lydia. So it's a pleasure to see you on screen, Glenn. I was just uh, reflecting um, that uh, I think we met at your house when you used to live in St. Louis in about, uh, must have been in the summer of 2004, or it might have been the summer of 2005. I was doing my PhD. Uh, you kindly welcomed me and... Uh, sat me down with a glass of iced tea. So it's quite some time since we've been uh, interacting and working together a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I would have provided a beer, but I, I didn't have any hot, the kind of hot beer that you English people like. <laughs> well, with that, with that dig at, uh, at English beer, uh, which, which may well be deserved, I don't know. Um, let's, let's plunge in and talk about this really interesting <clears throat> book, um, which uh, Lydia and I are both involved in uh, teaching at IDS, and we're both looking forward to using this book in our teaching programs in the coming academic year. So, um, Glenn, let's get started with a, a nice and easy question. In this book, you talk about the concept of three agricultures. You make a distinction between three different kinds of agriculture. And um, I think it would be helpful for the listeners if you could explain what these three agricultures are and maybe how they differ from one another and how does that matter for your thesis. And a quick follow-up to that is you call the third agriculture intensive and maybe you'd like to say something about uh, why that is. Um, sure. So the three agricultures are all, they're the three different forms of agricultural growth, but all three of them also have embedded philosophies. And so the first one is Malthusian agriculture. And that's just the idea of, of uh, putting more land under the plow. It's just expansion. And that certainly is a way that agriculture can grow. <clears throat> the embedded philosophy that came from Robert Malthus in his famous little book published in 1798 is that that's the only way agriculture can grow. And that idea has been around for a long time, and it's been sort of tweaked, but it's, it's, it's had a lot of traction over the years, and it turns out to be based on a pretty comprehensive ignorance of agriculture. And then the second kind of agriculture is industrial, and that is distinguished by the fact that it brings in lots of inputs from outside the farm. And Malthus didn't know about that because it didn't really start until about around the 1830s and 40s. It started, uh, oddly enough, with the guano trade, bringing in lots of um, bird poop fertilizer from South America to Europe and to the U.S. But soon after that, there was a uh, various kinds of fertilizers started to be made. And then after that, there were, uh, there were machines and GMOs and pesticides and hybrids and so on and so forth. But none of that was going on during Malthus's time. And it's important that the, the materials are coming in from outside because that means it engages all sorts of polit political interests from off, off, from off the farm. And it's got this embedded philosophy that uh, that that's what you need. That is the only way that agriculture can grow beyond what, Malth what, what Malthus wrote about. And that idea that you, you need to have scientific technology coming in from off farm in order to grow food production, it was enshrined really with the Green Revolution and the hero of which was Norman Borlaug who constantly talked about how peasant agriculture was backward, it was stagnant, it was tradition bound, 
and everybody's going to starve unless we bring in pesticides and bread seeds and, and so on and so forth. And then the third kind is intensive agriculture. And you're right, Dominic, we've got a, a terminological problem. These terms are not really standardized. <clears throat> and many people call modern industrial agriculture intensive, but I find that confusing. There's a whole literature um, by people that study small farms around the world, and we use the word intensive for this third kind of agriculture. Uh, and this is a kind of agricultural growth that is driven mainly by increased labor. And if there is technology involved, but it's usually relatively simple, oftentimes ingenious local technology. And so, uh, but it's mainly what happens in intensive agriculture and the embedded philosophy here is that um, as you farm more and more intensively, your work actually becomes less and less efficient. And so you have to put in what the economists would call increasing marginal costs to agriculture. So people don't do it unless they have to. And one of the main reasons they have to is that population goes up. And so you have to farm more intensively. But it's quite different than Malthusian agriculture because it turns out that most small farmers can produce a lot more on the same land if they put in added labor. So, um, and the embedded philosophy there comes from this economist, um, Esther Bostrop, who wrote about how as you, um, as you farm more and more intensively, your labor becomes less and less efficient. So Glenn, uh, you also call your um, uh, intensified form of agriculture, the third agriculture, right? Um, and uh, uh, one of your arguments in the book is that getting the story out on intensification is one of the objectives for writing the book. So um, you use the example of um, coffee in Nigeria um, as a case to, uh, to illustrate uh, uh, a style of cultivation that had been around for centuries before the Green Revolution, uh, and that embodies uh, the intensification form that you talk about. Um, so why do you use the term uh, third agriculture, which seems a residual term, to, to classify what seems to be a very important typology in your, in your thesis? Well, you're right. The third agriculture, the term sort of suggests that it, it came along third. Um, and in fact, it's you're quite right. It, it's It's been around a long, long time. And it was around when Robert Malthus was writing about the first agriculture. He just didn't know anything about agriculture, ironically. Um, so you're right. The, the, the term's a little bit awkward, but I call it the third one just because it's, it's the third one I talk about in the book. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But you're you're also quite right. One of my main goals here is to get the story out on it because there is a huge gap between what agricultural scholars like myself and like you two know about this and what the public knows about it. Uh, and the Coffeyar were a great example. This was a this was one of many books that have been written about intensive cultivators in the global south. And it's, it's a well-known case study to people like us. And it demonstrates, I think pretty dramatically, how intensive agriculture can work and, and how wrong the idea is that these poor barefoot backward cultivators, especially in Africa, need uh, global, you know, scientists from the global north to come in and save them. These people were farming up a storm very productively and very sustainably with no external technology, whatever. <clears throat> with the exception of every adult would buy a steel hoe at some point in their life. There's a great big uh, hoe that these people use to work the land, but otherwise there was no external technology whatsoever. And you all would know about cases like that. And I know about cases like that. And lots of anthropologists and geographers know about cases like that but it's a story that just doesn't get out to the public. And so there is this widespread perception that in places, especially in Africa, but also in Asia and South America and so on, that there are these poor barefoot cultivators just desperately waiting for white scientists from the global North to come in from, some, from with some technology that will feed them. So I, I was 
that's the story I was, I was trying to get out. I found your, your arguments around coffee are very compelling, and I think they relate to different parts of the world, not only in the global south, but also in the no global north, what we can observe about uh, people's practices on the land. Uh, your, your critique to the Green Revolution is also quite compelling, and, and your argument that it was less about feeding the world, feeding the world and, and alleviating poverty, and, and a lot to do uh, with industrialization, commercialization, and, and the capitalist penetration of agriculture. So why do you think that 70 years on, we're still here talking about the Green Revolution? Why is this Green Revolution mindset, if we can call it that, so persistent? Well, it is a very valuable public relations tool for industrial agriculture. There was the Green Revolution, what we're talking about the Green Revolution, this term also is not really standardized, but I'm specifically talking about um, semi-dwarf wheats and rices that were bred and uh, developed and brought into, especially India, but also other places in the global South in, in the 1960s. And they came along, especially in India, with the story that there was a ghastly famine going on and that millions and millions would starve soon and that these seeds showed up. And in India, it was especially wheat, although green um, new rices came in as well. Um, the story is that this wheat came in and it led to bumper crops and it saved a billion lives. And so you hear this phrase over and over again and the, the wheat breeder Norman Borlaug, who actually bred the wheat in Mexico <clears throat> in a Rockefeller-supported program, he he frequently um, goes along with the uh, with the tagline, "The man who saved a billion lives," um, and and so that's the story, um, and it is a story that it caught it caught a lot of people's imagination. You know, he was a charismatic character, and it's a uh, so often the news about agriculture seems to be bad and this seemed to be a feel good story. Um, and he was also, he really sold the Green Revolution and people there at IDS have written about how he became the brand hero of the Green Revolution. He really sold it. He spent the latter part of his career basically being a spokesperson for industrial agriculture and viciously attacking environmentalists and anybody who spoke highly of indigenous methods of agriculture and so on. So he's, he sold it himself. But <clears throat> it's gone on to continue to be an important legend for other reasons. A lot of this has to do with the whole world of biotechnology. So we, we get genetically modified crops that first start appearing on the market in the mid 90s with not a whole lot of controversy at first. And then by the late 90s, there's tremendous controversy, especially in Western Europe, and the biotech industry realized that it needed to have a compelling narrative as to why these technologies are good, why genetically modified crops are, are useful for the world. And so the biotech industry, which started to spend a tremendous amount of fortunes on public relations, they started to tell and retell the story of Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution as a way of framing what they were doing. And so, for instance, the chief technology officer from Monsanto went to visit Borlaug when he was late in his life um, and got a quote from him where they said, well, Borlaug's eyes welled up with tears. And the Monsanto guy said, what's the matter, Norman? And Norman said, you know, I made it through the green revolution, but I don't think I'll make it through the gene revolution. And so um, actually, there's been a tremendous amount written about Borlaug since he died in the, in the late 1990s, and it's pushed by the by the biotech industry, which really wants to promote this narrative that this is a continuation of the Green Revolution. This is what's needed to, to feed the world and so on. Can I also ask you where states come in uh, and what you mean by uh, the legibility of industrial agriculture? That's something that you mentioned in the book in relation specifically to uh, how governments uh, then get into the picture? I spent a fair amount of time looking at how industrial technologies were developed for agriculture. And one of the things I kept coming back to was that an awful lot of these technologies are not inherently superior at all 
they only end up being economically viable because governments support the living hell out of them. And they support them by spending enormous amounts of money developing them. And they also support them by allowing them to externalize their costs. And so like fertilizer is a classic example of that. Most people today assume that uh, fertilizer factories, especially nitrogen, which is the, the most important component in chemical fertilizer, they assume that it's this wonderful stuff that keeps the planet fed and so on and so forth. And I, I spent a lot of, I became very absorbed in the history of fertilizer. I became like a real fertilizer nerd when I was writing this, this book. And it turns out the fertilizer's got a very dark history and it was supported very heavily, first by the German state, which was supporting it because the same thing, the same sack factories that make fertilizer also make bombs and they were they were involved in World War One. And then the US it supported the hell out of the, the industry in the 1920s. Although we didn't need to produce more food then, it was a time of food gluts in, in the US. But the, the US government for, for various political, geopolitical reasons supported the fertilizer industry and built it into um, what it is today. They, they built demo factories and they provided intellectual property to fertilizer companies and they subsidized them and so on and so forth. Um, so, and, and you see this over and over again, uh, where the technologies become um, become a major part of agriculture only because states states support them. And now we find out with fertilizer today that um, states are providing incredible amount of support by allowing fertilizers to to pollute the world that we live in. Is a remarkable fact is that in the U.S of all of the enormous amounts of nitrogen fertilizer that get put on our crops every year, only 13% of it ends up in our actual diet. 87% is pollution and it pollutes the air and it pollutes the water. And the, uh, the using it pollutes the air and also making it pollutes the air. And just one other example of how, how the government supports it is the main stuff that nitrogen fertilizer is made out of is natural gas, which we get increasingly in the U.S. by fracking. And so fracking is an environmental, major environmental problem. We're injecting toxic fluids into the ground. We don't even know what they are because it's usually considered a trade secret. Um, and we're destabilizing ground so that we're getting earthquakes in a lot of places in order to get natural gas to make fertilizer that we apply to crops, 87% of which is, is, is pollution. And the government allows all of this. There are so many places along the way where the government could step in and say, no, if you're gonna pollute the environment in this way, you have to take responsibility for it. So I ended up becoming very um, quite critical, let's say, of, of agricultural technologies as really being the result more of state support than of any sort of inherent superiority. Glenn, that's great. Um, I, using the wonders of Wikipedia, I've just looked up, I think you misspoke a few moments ago when you uh, suggested that uh, Norman Borlaug died in the late 1990s. Uh, apparently he died in 2009. So just oh, to, all right. just to, um, to I, I stand corrected. clarify that detail because someone will probably pick us up on it. So um, coming back to the to the thesis of the book then, you've uh, explained your uh, critique, I think of the Malthusian position and the uh, you've explained your take on the green revolution and industrial agriculture and the extent to which it relies on public subsidy and the, um, the sort of toxic side effects of all of that. So I, I'm going to take a leap and say that your basic thesis in this book is that we all should take the third agriculture a lot more seriously than we do. And uh, you call that the, the, as it were, the real intensive agriculture for the reasons that you've explained. But there's a couple of, I want to dig into that a little bit uh, without getting too technical, but there are two kind of protagonists, I reckon, in this book uh, that are particularly important for understanding the thesis. One is Thomas Robert Malthus and the other is Esther Bosrup. So could you explain what they had to say about the relationship between uh, 
population and intensification of agriculture. And maybe you could then say what you think each of those two characters got right and what they got wrong and what's your sort of takeaway from learning from the two of them. Yeah, there's in some ways they're polar opposites, although they actually agreed on a few points. But um, I guess they're both examples of people who said, let's get back to first principles and say, what really makes agriculture work? What are the nuts and bolts of it? And that's the one thing that I think Malthus did right. <clears throat> he was writing, he was writing during the heyday of the Enlightenment. And a lot of writers in Western Europe, and especially in, in England, um, we're getting maybe a little bit carried away with ideas about how, you know, we, we've thrown off the yoke of the authority of the church and we can now use reason and science and make the world better and perfect our society and perfect our bodies and so on and so forth. And so he was, he read a lot of this stuff and he thought they were getting a little bit, some of the ideas were getting a bit out of hand. And he probably was right. I mean, Godwin, who was the main guy that he attacked, was a believer that um, eventually, we can <clears throat> end up with uh, perfected humans where there, there's no need for sleep or sex and so on and so forth. Um, but sex and sleep are still here. <clears throat> and Robert Malthus knew they would be. And so he was he was trying to say, look, let's get real. Let's go back to first principles and say, how does society actually work? What And especially, how does food operate in it? And he had this very straightforward and compelling philosophy of how it all worked, which is, as most people know, that it, population inherently tends to grow faster than food production. Food production, the way God set up the world, it is physically incapable of keeping up with population. Therefore, it has to check population all the time. And then he went on beyond that, and he said, that's what causes most of the problems in society. It's not just that food production falls behind and people starve, it says it's much more social than that. Food production falls behind and then people start behaving badly. And you get all sorts of what he called vices and you get all sorts of social problems and you get diseases. And then only in the end do you actually get um, famine. So I really applaud him for going back and asking the tough questions of what are the basic drivers of of food and population. He just he just got them wrong. Um, and um, population is always checked by social forces. And there's this whole field of demography now, which historians and anthropologists and sociologists and geographers all participate in, that studies the ways in which societies actually regulate themselves. And so he he was just wrong about population regulation. And he was also wrong about agriculture because intensive agriculture was going on when he wrote the book. He just didn't know about it. I mean, the Netherlands were an extraordinary example of it, but there's also intensification going on in parts of the UK. He just didn't know about it. And then industrial agriculture would raise production a lot, but that didn't come along until, until after he had died. So the bottom line is what he got right was his insistence on going back to first principles. What he got wrong was everything. All, what he got wrong was the first principles. <laughs> um, Basra ended up, in a sense, flipping the script. Um, she, in essence, said, okay, according to Malthus, um, agriculture drives population. That is, agriculture sets the limits on population. So agriculture is the independent variable and it determines population. She said in many ways, the reverse is true. And she says, if you look around at how people actually farm, especially all around the global south, you find that they're frequently not farming land to its full potential that they're able to keep themselves fed by oftentimes practicing various forms of slash and burn agriculture. And the reason they're doing that is that it actually is in a very efficient use of their labor. If you can harness the forces of, of burning and of fallowing, those forces will take care of an awful lot of the work of agriculture for you. 
when population goes up, she pointed out, you can't keep practicing slash and burn agriculture because while it actually can be environmentally sustainable, obviously it isn't always, but it can be environmentally sustainable, and it's a pretty efficient use of your labor, it just plain takes a lot of land. And so if population goes up, you just can't do it as much as you used to because there's just not enough land left. So then, and only then, do you start shortening your fallows and you're then not relying so much on fire and fallow to do the work for you. And you end up having to do more of the work yourself. You have to fertilize the land instead of just letting the fire do it. You have to start weeding more. You have to start doing all sorts of other stuff um, to, make, to, to make food produce, to produce food. So in a sense, population drives agriculture. In a sense, she reversed the tables on, on Malthus. <clears throat> she also just knew a lot about peasant agriculture, which as we've said, Malthus unfortunately didn't. Were there any limitations? Were there any sort of corrections that you would want to apply to Bosrup in her turn? Well, there's been a lot written about Bosrup um, and there's a whole kind of article that has come out uh, frequently actually where people have said, well, Bosrup assumes this and that's wrong. <clears throat> I, I tend to be a Bosrup fan, but I think it's important to recognize that she was putting out a very general theory about how agriculture worked. And general theories always make assumptions. They always have simplifying conditions. And that was true of Bostrup. Um, Bostrup didn't do a good job of, of spelling out her simplifying assumptions. And so I've tried to do that, some of the things that, that I've written. Um, but yes, she simplifies the fact that <clears throat> um, what she calls intensification doesn't work everywhere. There are simply some environments where even if you do intensify, you just can't boost production very much. There also are some environments where your work doesn't actually become less and less efficient as you intensify. I mean, Bostrip has this simplified model that says, as you intensify, you have to work harder and harder. And that turns out not to be true with intensive wet rice because with intensive wet rice, there's pretty good data on this now that you intensive wet rice cultivators do work harder and harder than people that grow dry upland rice, but they get a proportionate return on their labor. I mean, it's a very labor intensive way to grow rice, but it's incredibly productive. And so um, it, it's an exception to the Bostrop model. And it's a huge exception because wet rice is such an enormous food production system all across especially all across Asia. You know, the other thing that's a problem with, with Basrup, uh, most of us that work on agricultural issues now are very interested in the political aspects of it. Most of us call ourselves political ecologists now, whereas in an earlier era, we might've been called cultural ecologists. <clears throat> um, Basrup has a little bit of a blind spot for politics. And so she tends to say, well, when population density goes up, that's when people intensify. And most of us from a political standpoint now would say, well, when population density goes up, that's when you intensify if you can. And frequently you can't because you don't have secure claim to the land. So if you're putting in lots of labor to improve the land, um, you need to be sure that you'll be able to keep farming it or, or you're wasting your labor. Or actually, the, the, the other side of this is um, when population density goes up, rather than saying you have to intensify, what we have seen so many societies do is to force other people to do the intensive work for us. That's one of the that's what, what slavery was all about in, in many parts of the world. Um, slave societies, one right after the other, one of the main things they would always have enslaved people do is do the work of intensive farming for them. So it, it doesn't disprove Bosrup. It's just sort of a darker um, a darker side of, of human food production that Bosrup didn't write about very much. You are listening to the Between the Lines podcast from the Institute of Development Studies. Um, 
I'd like to change the direction of the conversation slightly. I think in it, you've uh, explained about the general thesis of the book and you've delved into some of its key themes. Um, but stepping back a, li a little bit and maybe uh, recalling uh, the state of mind when you were contemplating uh, writing the book in the first place, what inspired you to write the book? And in particular, I would like to know um, who, you, who you're trying to influence with this book. Um, who do you want to read it? And are there some minds out there that you'd like to change? Well, what happened to me was back a number of years ago i had a sabbatical coming up and i applied for and was fortunate enough to get a fellowship from the guggenheim foundation which allowed me to have like basically a whole year to to work on this book and the book i thought i was going to write was about gmos that is genetically modified crops because that is something that i had written a lot about and in fact had collaborated with you in research on um but the wonderful thing about having a whole sabbatical is that you have time to, to sit back at the beginning and pour yourself a cup of coffee and, and think for a while. And as I thought about what needs to be said about GMOs, one of the things that I thought was most important was that, again, this is not an inherently superior technology. It is something that only works because of government subsidy. I don't want to dwell on this right now, but a tremendous amount of research has to go into developing a genetically modified crop. Biotech companies do some research themselves, but the vast majority of it is done in the academy. And in the US, it's supported by the federal government. So in other words, it is a technology that only gets into farmers' fields because of phenomenal government subsidy. I started as I spent a fair amount of time thinking about agriculture in a broader sense, I realized that that is a story that plays out over and over again. And that's what led me to this, one of the main theses in the book, this idea that these agricultural technologies are not inherently superior, they're just able to attract more government subsidy. So it started off with me trying to think big about what really makes GMOs work. Then I realize that this is a story that could be told about all these technologies. Um, it, it's a story that gets told about tractors. You know, we think about tractors as being a godsend for agriculture, but there is a phenomenally good book by the historian Deborah Fitzgerald called Every Farm a Factory. And she does a wonderful job of showing that tractors spread in the US especially in the 1920s, not because they were inherently superior, but because of various kinds of government subsidy. And because the government had created a whole new kind of engineers called agricultural engineers that were leaning on farmers to adopt these things. And banks insisted that you have a tractor or they wouldn't give you a loan and so on and so forth. <clears throat> so anyway, this is a story that could be told about just about any agricultural technology. And I realized that if I were going to try to tell it about all these major technologies, about the tractors and the GMOs and the pesticides and the, and the hybrid seeds and so on, it would be a 2000 page book. So I zeroed in on just uh, the ones that people tend to think of as the most benign, that is fertilizers and hybrid seeds. It turns out they're not the most benign at all. And then um, <clears throat> there also is a story about how professionally bred seeds and fertilizers made their way into the global south. So that's what led me to, the, to talk about the Green Revolution. There's, a, I think, another inspiration which I detected in the book, which is um, you seem to be looking back on your long career and uh, thinking, I, I guess, to um, what it sums up to and what you've learned over your lifetime of working on these topics. And I get the impression that there's quite a strong debt in the book that you are uh, reflecting on your relationship with uh, Robert Netting and how he inspired your career. And I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about Netting and, and what we all should learn from his work. Yeah, Robert Netting was an anthropologist who, um, who specialized in, in agriculture, although that's not what he started out to specialize in. And he, he told he, he told me this story, which I relate in the book, about how he ended up in Nigeria in 1960 to work on politics. He wasn't there to study agriculture at all. Nigeria had just become an independent um, nation after years of British rule. 
And he wanted to study how the change in the capital, the political change in the capital, was affecting village politics, especially out in the middle belt, where there are lots of very small ethnic groups. And he'd been talking to local chiefs out in the middle belt for a couple of weeks and was finding out that his thesis question, how did the change in the government affect local politics, had a one-word answer. None. It, wasn't, it, it, it had not affected local politics at all. A lot of them were. <clears throat> and so he realized he had a real problem. And he happened to confront the fact that he had to just start all over when he was in a Kofiar village. And he he literally, you know, looked up like in frustration, you know, and and he he looked at the hillside and he said, wow, the hillside has got hundreds and hundreds of agricultural terraces and all of them have got different things growing on them. And so he shifted the topic of conversation and he asked the chief, what's going on on the hillsides? And this led him to dig into how agriculture was working there. And he found that he had run across one of, I mean, the coffee are not unique in being highly intensive, sustainable farmers in Africa, but they are a very good case of it. And he happened to have realized he had to reboot his research when he was right in the middle of this, um, this remarkable intensive agriculture landscape. <clears throat> so he just, he started all over and he said, let me understand how this works. And let me understand how we got it so wrong, because we have always thought that farmers in Africa need to be shown how to farm. And these people are farming very productively and, and, and very sustainably. So um, he was he, he then spent the rest of his career basically studying how that works. And as an anthropologist, he was especially interested in the social side of it. And intensive agriculture has to be understood socially. I mean, if you're a modern day in, um, industrial farmer, most of your resources come from capital. And so it all has to do with your relationship to the bank and so on and so forth. In intensive agriculture, it's labor and it gets mobilized socially. So the agricultural system is not just the tools and the seeds and the ground. It is the household labor arrangements and it is the reciprocal work groups and it's the festive labor parties. And it's, it's a, there's a whole social side to how this works. And so he ended up spending much of the rest of his career not only studying how intensive systems work around the world, but, but how they're put together socially. Very important work. The, the only problem is that Bob was an academic, he was an academics academic. Everything was very carefully detailed with numbers and footnotes. And it was a very, uh, had a lot of integrity and care as a scholar, but he never addressed himself to the wider public. And so because of that, people can say with complete impunity, things like, well, we all know that Africans need need technology to come in. You know, they need we all know that they need tractors and that they need fertilizers and so on. <clears throat> and so those of us that actually work on these topics professionally might think, wow, you need to read some work by Robert Netty and a bunch of other people as well. He, he was not alone in writing about this, but he addressed himself just to other academics. It worked well for him professionally. He was a, a distinguished professor at Arizona. He was a member of the National Academy based on his work on, on smallholder farmers, but he never really made a dent on, on the public thinking about it. I wanted to try to make a little bit of a dent in, in public thinking about it. And so this book is aimed at students and other academics, but I've tried very hard to make it engaging and not overly technical and non-jargony so that it will be read by, by a wider audience. So I, I certainly hope that's that's the case. But let me uh, just continue on your interests in particular individuals. So several names come up a lot uh, in the book and we've mentioned already uh, some of them. And this is, I guess, one of the things that makes your uh, writing quite engaging. So you, you take us on a journey between uh, very profound intellectual debates and then more personal accounts about individuals. And I guess how they, how, where they got their ideas from, what inspired them, you know, Netting's, 
PhD dilemmas, uh, Elbridge a taxi tour in a hot night in Delhi, or Malthus living during the French Revolution, you know, his trouble with, uh, with his father and so on. Why did you think it was important to tell uh, the story about the individuals, uh, you know, the people behind the ideas for us to understand uh, your thesis and I guess the arguments of, uh, of, of these individuals? Well, one thing, they're just compelling characters. Um, and we could also throw in um, Paul Ehrlich and Norman Borlaug in there who are characters in this book. They're just, they're interesting characters. They're also people that I think meant well, but got some things profoundly wrong. Um, we talked about how Malthus got things wrong and um, the story of, of how he got him wrong, I think, is sort of a personal story, and it it, it echoes. You, you think about Malthus. I mean, here's a guy who went to college in the 1700s, and you think about it as a world that was just so completely different. Um, but a lot of what drove Malthus's theories had to do with it was a kid who'd gone off to college, and he came back from college. He didn't have a job. He was sort of hanging out, living with his parents, and and partying, and and um, getting a little bit tired of his dad's views, you know, his dad was sort of lecturing him about stuff and his dad was a big fan of the enlightenment. And like a lot of people today, you know, in that situation, a lot of the, the young folks will start to think, look, you know, you're, you're sort of in my face with your ideas. I've got my own ideas. And so one of the things that Malthus was doing was trying to develop a way of, 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 of shutting down his father's views and saying, I've developed my own concepts. And then he was inspired in part by his complete misunderstanding of, of his parishioners. I mean, he, he didn't want to go to work at all, but his dad said, you've got to go to work. And he got him a job as a pastor in this little backwoods community of Oakwood, which wasn't actually all that far from where he lived. Mouth is from a very wealthy family. And Oakwood is a very poor area, <clears throat> but he had to go live there. And I think... It, it, he had a very uncharitable reaction to his parishioners. Um, he tended to see them as, as sort of backward and, and beneath him. And there was a big class divide. And it was actually a physical divide as well. There's this historian has done fascinating work on heights, people's heights in history. And the late 1700s, in the late 1700s in England, there was one of history's largest stature gaps, height gaps between the elite and the peasants. So these people would have been, you know, six inches shorter than him. Um, and and they were much poorer than him. And anyway, and he ended up um ended up with a theory that basically blamed their poverty on their own libidos and the fact that they just couldn't keep their zippers up, basically. Um, <clears throat> so I, I just found this story rather compelling. The whole thing about Paul Ehrlich was also a compelling character. And I had a personal, I mean, I remembered him personally. I was a teenager and he was on TV. Um, and most teenagers back then, we weren't watching people who were talking about world problems, but we watched him because he was on the Johnny Carson show. And also because he was a very compelling speaker, very charismatic and funny. And, and, and he seemed to know exactly what he was talking about. And I remember watching him on TV probably during the, um, probably not that long after the um, the supposed famine in India. And he was talking about how hundreds of millions of people are going to starve. And I completely believed it. And it took me literally decades to unlearn that and to realize that, as I argue in the book, we've had severe problems with overproduction for over a century um, and it causes enormous problems and we spend all of our time fretting about how oh no how how will we produce more food in the future we need to produce less food <laughs> well not less food we need to produce less agricultural product um, and we need to do it better so it took me a long time to unlearn it so i spent a lot of time thinking about about Ehrlich and about how he was so captivating to me as a teenager and how he seemed to be so completely right. And how years later, I realized that he, he just completely headed backwards. Borlaug was an interesting character as well. Um, he's 
called a great humanitarian and he's the, some people have called him the greatest man in history and he's the dude that saved a billion lives and so on. And, and I dissent. I think the man had a real mean streak in him. Um, he was incredibly hostile towards people who disagreed with him, which included uh, hippies and environmentalists and people that thought that DDT was a toxin and so on and so forth. Um, and he was absolutely insistent in his views on peasant agriculture. He thought that that peasants were peasant agriculture was was backwards, tradition bound. He always used the word stagnant, incapable of change. Um, <clears throat> and furthermore, he thought that even if you show up with a good technology, they won't necessarily adopt it. He felt that the, they had to be shocked. Um, they had to be, you know, picked up by the scruff of their neck and 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 shook, uh, so that they would then then become modern and start adopting adopting new technologies. And as somebody who actually studies the inventiveness of smallholder agriculture, I think he just got it completely wrong. Um, so anyway, I, I I just thought a lot of these folks were 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 compelling characters, and they. Uh, they're interesting in their own way, but they also got some key things wrong. Glenn, uh, lis listening to you um, talking about uh, Norman Borlaug and uh, and uh, Robert Malthus and people like that, you know, it's one of the things which I think is invigorating and fun and entertaining about this book, uh, which makes it a good read, is that, you know, you're, uh, I think, I feel like you're having a good old time knocking some people off their perches, you're, um, you're sort of slaughtering some sacred cows and um i think that's that's always good fun but um uh, i there's one kind of message which i guess will will surprise a lot of people is that um so you've mentioned just now that actually we're producing too much food which i think is is so, goes so much against the grain of kind of the common understanding of the food supply situation and what we need to do to kind of feed the world and um You've also talked about how uh, the uh, green revolution was not all that it was cracked up to be. I, I wonder if you've got a sort of, you know, in terms of a, something that you would like the public to learn about the history of the green revolution, whenever they hear someone, you know, mention the green revolution on the radio or on a podcast or on a TV show or something, what's the kind of key information that you want them to, to understand about that period of our history and, and what we should learn from it going forward? I, I think there is a bigger gap between what actually happened and what people think about what happened with the Green Revolution and any other topic I can think of, with the possible exception of the Irish Great Famine of the, of the 1840s. I mean, and I talk about both of those in here, <clears throat> but I mean, even today, people talk about the Irish Famine as the result of overpopulation. And there certainly were a lot of people saying that back when it was going on in the 1840s. And it's quite true that Irish population had increased before the famine, but it still wasn't all that high by, by some European standards. But more to the point, the Irish famine was a problem of poverty, not a problem of overpopulation. Ireland was exporting food hand over fist during the famine. <clears throat> and so there's something that it really sticks in my craw about this, where you've got people who were back in England, like Charles Trevelyan, who was in charge of the English um, you know, relief effort there. And he was probably eating beef and pork that was produced and exported from Ireland while he was talking about how God is just trimming the Irish herd because he knows there's too many people there for, for the food supply. I mean, it, it's not only the, the, their interpretation of the Irish famine, which continues in some places today, was not only wrong, but to me really quite offensive. There's a somewhat parallel story with, with the Green Revolution. Um, and the story that gets told over and over again is that India just had an overpopulation problem. And it, it really, every, everything came to a head in 1965, 1967, when there was a famine. Now, it's true that there was a, an unusual, very bad drought that lasted for two years in there. And it dis, did cause hardship. 
<clears throat> in various parts of India, certainly in the state of Bihar. But the story came out that people are starving left and right, and it is because of, of overpopulation. And actually, India had been exporting food leading up to that. They had been taking food out of food production. Uh, uh, they'd been taking land out of food production and planting export crops like jute because they wanted to get some foreign income to build up their, their industry. So it wasn't really a problem of overpopulation at all. It was a problem of a two-year drought. And just about any country with a severe two-year drought is going to have to import a bunch of food. And that's what they did. <clears throat> but then the drought ended and production of all their crops rose. Production of the other crops happened to rise at the same time that Norman Borlaug's Green Revolution wheat showed up. And so it's true, wheat production went way up, but production of pulses and corn and other non-green revolution crops went up as well. <clears throat> but what I found out is that there were, there were data hiding in plain sight that anybody could have gotten from standard sources on, on Indian agriculture that showed that the increase in wheat production came at the expense of other crops. And so, <clears throat> If you do this, you, you set aside the two-year drought as a very unusual time, and you chart out how food production was growing before the, before the drought came along. Not just wheat production, because wheat is only one of a whole series of food crops. It wasn't even the top food crop in India. You chart out how food production was growing before the drought came along. And then the drought ended and the Green Revolution crops showed up and you chart out how food production was growing afterwards. It turned out that the Green Revolution did not speed up food production at all. Actually, it slowed it down a little tiny bit. And the data are right there. And if anybody wants to um, you know, take a look at the chart, I encourage them to do so. These are all solid data from the Indian Agricultural Establishment. The one thing that did go up, that went way up, was the amount of chemical fertilizer it took to produce each ton of food. So what the data show, and I just want to be very clear about this, because this is, this is where there is such a huge gap between what the data actually show and what people think. <clears throat> the data show that the Green Revolution did not increase food production, the rate of growth of food production at all. In essence, it didn't produce any more food than what would have been produced. It just made it more chemical intensive. Well, thanks very much, Glenn, for spending this time with us and uh, providing us a very rich, informative overview of your book. And we really look forward to sharing it with our colleagues and students and IDS and, uh, and, and really recommend it very strongly to uh, uh, audiences interested in the history of the Green Revolution and also uh, the present and the future of agriculture and food and food issues. So thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.